to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about inequality in the FEMA flood program and escalating conflict between Russia and Lithuania. And we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, today, since we'll be on a break tomorrow. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... Today, on June 23rd in 1988, NASA scientist James Henson testified to Congress stating the greenhouse effect had been detected, indicating that the climate was in fact changing. Hansen was also arrested on this day in 2009 during a protest against mountaintop removal mining at Massey Energy Company. And Hansen was on the record saying that coal is the single greatest threat to civilization and all life on our planet. He said the dirtiest trick that governments play on their citizens is that they are working for, quote, clean coal. The trains carrying coal to power plants are death trains. He said coal-fired power plants are factories of death. Hansen has also said that several times in Earth's long history, rapid global warming of several degrees has occurred. In each case, more than half of plant and animal species went extinct. New species came into being over tens of hundreds of thousands of years. But these are time scales and generations that we cannot imagine. If we drive our fellow species to extinction, we will leave a far more desolate planet for our descendants than the world that we inherited from our elders. And actually, people have been raising the alarm about damage, that damage that burning fossil fuels would cause to the environment for centuries, dating all the way back to 1856 with Eunice Foote, an American scientist and woman's rights campaigner who published a paper that for the first time suggested that carbon dioxide was a key component in warming the planet. But because she was a woman, all the smart male scientists scoffed at her paper and ideas and ignored her. Then in 1859, John Tyndall, an Irish physicist, showed how only small quantities of vapor, water, carbon dioxide, and other gases could change the planet's temperature. He was taken seriously because, you know, male, but not seriously enough to change the industrialists' minds or practices, though. Then in 1896, the Swedish scientist Svante Arrhenius was the first to prove the link between carbon dioxide and the greenhouse effect. In his paper on the influence of carbonic acid in the air upon the temperature of the ground, he doesn't explicitly link the burning of fossil fuels to climate change, but he does indicate that fossil fuels are carbon rich, so he noted the potential for climate destruction through burning of those entities. He did make the direct connection in later work. Then in 1912, an article written by Francis Molina titled The Effect of the Combustion of Coal on the Climate, What Scientists Predict for the Future, was published in Popular Mechanics magazine. 
In it, there is an ominous-looking picture of an industrial plant with multiple smokestacks spewing gray or black billows of thick smoke into the air. The caption underneath this picture reads, quote, the furnaces of the world are now burning about 2 million tons of coal a year. When this is burned, uniting with oxygen, it adds about 7 million tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere yearly. This tends to make the air a more effective blanket for the earth and to raise its temperature. The effect may be considerable in a few centuries. Now, you may think that this indicates that the author is issuing a dire warning of the damage to future generations of humanity due to the burning of fossil fuels. But when you read the article, you see that what's actually happening is what I think has always happened when the pursuit of industrial progress under capitalism becomes more important than science that reveals the damage that progress is creating. In the very same article, the author says that the changes to the atmosphere that the release of carbon dioxide will cause will not cause harm, but will ensure that men in future generations can enjoy milder breezes and live under sunnier skies. Why? Because it's the brains of the courageous, enterprising, and ingenious Americans who are making this positive change for the world by burning fossil fuels to make the world warmer, and that even the dull foreigner, they literally use those terms, toiling away in the mines to produce the fuel to feed the consuming furnaces of modern industry that's dumping all that extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, while even they realize they're able to feed their families by doing it and warming up the earth for future generations to enjoy. That's how they framed it. Only that's not how climate change has or will work out, is it? Despite the real-world disaster that climate change is already causing and will continue to, just like in that old article, commerce, industry, and capitalism control the narrative regarding how to combat it. So even solutions that are supposed to combat climate change end up being funded, influenced, and carried out by capitalists and political opportunists who bring their biases with them. And that means the communities and people most at risk to face climate catastrophe are served the least by these solutions, if they're served at all. We've known about climate change for at least a century. Now that it is upon us and we are contending with the realities of climate catastrophe, we have to develop people-centered solutions that are directed and implemented by the people, because we cannot trust the people who got us into this mess to save us from it. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are happy to be joined by Anthony Rogers Wright, Director of Environmental Justice with New York Lawyers for the Public Interest, to talk about uh, biases and discrimination and equality in the FEMA flood program. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Mr. Jackie. Good to see uh, be with you this morning. 
Good to have you on, uh, particularly to talk about this very troubling story. And, you know, there always seems to be these kinds of issues when uh, the capitalists uh, try to administer programs that are supposed to solve a problem. And we see this again with FEMA in the way their flood program uh, is being administered in that apparently uh, it could violate uh, civil rights law. So what is this uh, issue about uh, and and how are the uh, programs that they are, they've been trying to administer, how are they violating people's rights? Okay. I, I mean, so, um, you know, unfortunately, th- this is an agency which, um, you know, going back to um, uh, 2005, when, you know, many black people, as we know, were displaced by the climate-fueled event, um, Hurricane Katrina, that FEMA was treating people differently, specifically uh, the poorer and blacker uh, that you were, the uh, less chance that you were to be prioritized for uh, FEMA assistance, which is supposed to be guaranteed for all um, um, residents, not just citizens, but residents of the United States of America who have, um, um, you know, been impacted by a um, uh, a natural disaster or, or other kind of um, event that displaces them or and 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 results in damage to their homes. Um, unfortunately, what we've been seeing time and time again, uh, you know, a recent NPR report also confirmed this that um, the, an investigation found that FEMA aid favors wealthy and white people. So, so not just you know, it's not just a class issue, Sister Jackie. This is also a racial issue. It's a race and a class issue, and this is happening um, by a federal uh, uh, through a federal agency which quite frankly um, has been able to evade any type of action um, and, and as you said that, that's a large result of, of, of capitalism and and this is actually a, a, a form of disaster capitalism because of course what um, you know there's cumulative effects and there's a domino um, effect as well people have damaged homes they're, they that they can't be lived in you know, anymore. Um, they're displaced and, and maybe cannot pay the mortgages anymore. And then are forced to give up those homes. Guess who those homes are picked up by? You see what happened to New Orleans, right? Like I say, New Orleans was once a chocolate city and it will always be in our hearts. But like demographically, it's become a vanilla milkshake with drops of chocolate syrup sinking to the bottom of the cup because of um, racist policies and racist practices by uh, local, state and federal agencies like FEMA. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, there is a law called the Stafford Act, which is a 1988 federal law that authorizes the president to send state and local governments aid uh, following disasters. Uh, And it requires that federal funds be spent equitably. Interestingly enough, this act has unusually strong civil rights language that supports is supposed to protect a wide range of people from intentional discrimination, uh, discrimination and uh, the uh, unintentional, inadvertent discrimination. So even with this law in place, how does FEMA still end up uh, distributing disaster relief funds more in favor of wealthy white people than uh, poor working class uh, black and, and Latinx people? Well, you see, this is, and this is where, you know, the, the challenge always lies, Sister Jackie. I mean, there's laws 
and then there's the pr- uh, uh, the burden of proof that a law was broken. So yes, we have the Civil Rights Act, we have Title VI, which explicitly says that um, agencies receiving federal funds are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race, gender, LGBTQI status, etc. But when that happens, and we know that it happens on a daily basis, you know, and, and uh, we, we say there's du jour as well as de facto racism happening every single day in this country, how do you prove that? You know, how, how does one um, um, prove that? They have to go and get attorneys. And it's, it's a long and arduous process, uh, Sister Jackie. And then you add on to that um, a, a Supreme Court decision, speaking of, you know, more Ill- illegitimate um, branches of, of the uh, settler colonial project's government, um, that, they, that, that uh, in a ruling, Alexander v. Sandoval made that burden of proof even harder. This is Antonin, uh, Antonin Scalia's, um, um, when, when he was still alive and, and, and a Supreme Court justice, in his ruling and in his um, opinion, basically said there, there was no private right of action you know, for these homeowners. So it, it's a hard hoop to go through. And you're talking about poor folk, you know, who are, you know, have to work every day. You know, these are, these are working class and, 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 in some, and in many cases, poor folk. They don't have time, Sister Jackie, to go find a, an attorney and wait two or three years for a court case to be adjudicated. You know, they need immediate relief. And that's, that's the whole point of what FEMA is supposed to be providing. They seem to be able to provide it to, um, um, to, to, to white and um, wealthy people and, and, and black and brown people and poor people are getting the shaft. So what I would say is that this is um, uh, another opportunity for uh, uh, President Biden to live up to his word and have black people's backs, as he proclaimed to um, on that night in Wilmington, Delaware, when he was declared the president-elect. Yeah. And this FEMA program that uh, is the subject of this particular article is the program that provides funding uh, for elevating homes uh, in floodplains. And uh, the uh, article found that federal policies that require people to own their homes uh, to receive elevation funding and pay, in many cases, they still had to pay tens of thousands of dollars toward the project obviously penalizes people of color. And why is that? Why is it obvious that such a program penalizes people of color? Well, so, I mean, you know, there's, there's a few reasons. One, we have the disparity between um, homeowners and, and renters, right? Um, we, we, we know statistically that, um, uh, and, and this goes back, right, years and years of, of, of former racist or uh, still racist policies of redlining, uh, even when the Supreme Court ruled that you cannot do racist redlining or racist zoning, um, local officials basically circumvented the Supreme Court's directives, and there was no interdiction to prevent that from happening. So a lot of, um, we know that there's a massive gap between black and white home ownership. And and therefore, you know, what, what we're finding is that, like, as a result of, of FEMA's racist practices, the people who are, who are renting a home, they are um, um, really being set upon, and the people who own the homes who tend to be white are actually, in some cases, getting wealthier, right? Because, like, they're receiving um, a disproportionate share of the money, and some of that money is not just used for repairs, Sister Jackie, it's also used to improve the home, which improves, uh, uh, which increases uh, the, the, um, the value of the home and therefore increases money in the pocket of, of wealthy and white folks. So um, that, that's that's one way, you know, in, in just the just the sheer statistics of racist policies, racist mortgage uh, practices that have prevented as many black people from being homeowners, and and, and many of them be, uh, being renters. And, and when you're when you're a renter, FEMA pretty much just sees you as an invisible entity. You, you basically don't exist. 
And then there is, uh, you know, the fact that uh, this investigation found that, as you point out, Anthony, in 12 of the 18 states that have received almost all of the funds for uh, elevating homes that FEMA distributes, uh, more than half of the money went to communities where the median household income in 2019 was more than $100,000, more than $100,000, or the population was more than 90% white. Uh, It's worth noting that the U.S. median household income is $65,700, and the U.S. is 60% white, according to 2009 uh, uh, estimates. So literally all of this money for the home elevation program uh, in floodplains is really going to rich white people. But FEMA says that they're not to blame, they're not at fault, because they don't track uh, the you know the 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 data regarding race and income um, of of where they send the money uh, that sounds like a smokescreen to me I don't see how a federal agency doesn't track that kind of data but FEMA says that they don't so they said that you know we don't collect the data so we don't discriminate against individuals and this is what an official of FEMA said so you know what do you how do you respond to that and 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 more importantly how do the people who are not receiving the funds that they need to address the issues uh, that they are facing, mostly working class, poor, black, Latinx people, not only in floodplains, but in neighborhoods that are already heavily impacted by issues of uh, climate change and just regular, you know, pollution? How do they respond to FEMA's claims that they don't really discriminate against people because they don't collect that data, Anthony? I mean that the, the first uh, reaction I have to Mr. Jackie is that that is a um, an abject form of willful ignorance. I mean, I mean, come on. Um, and this is another example of why we say that that is de facto racism. Um, they they know the statistics. You know, at this point, they know where they're uh, awarding uh, money to. Like the United States of America, somehow has become more segregated. You know, than it was than even you know when our foremothers and forefathers were were, were fighting for basic civil rights. So uh, that, that that that's willful ignorance, and and what that calls for, you know, um, is well, and, and we don't know if we can depend on them. Unfortunately, right? The Congressional Black Caucus needs should should be stepping in and, mm. and working in in um, alignment with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and hearings need to be called for right now. As a matter of fact, I mean, I, I bet that we could probably make um, a phone call um, to um, Representative uh, uh, Caroline uh, Maloney, who is the chairwoman for um, Oversight and Reform, you know, to hold a hearing about this and bring the FEMA executives into um, Congress, have them sworn in and let them say that under oath and then have to answer tough questions from people like Rashida Tlaib, who lives in, uh, who represents a district in, in, in Detroit full of poor black folk and, and, and a champion for, for these folks. People like Ocasio-Cortez who will ask tough questions and, and, and um, Representative Maloney herself, I imagine, would ask tough questions. I've seen her in action and, and you know, when she gets down, she gets down. So I, I think that um, this, this, this is right for a congressional hearing as quickly um, as possible while the, the, the Democrats, who essentials as they are, still have the power to call these types of hearings, because this is very, very important. If a federal agency is exercising any form 
um, dis- even disparate treatment, it needs to be brought to the light and it needs to be ended, you know, immediately. And people need to be held accountable. So, I mean, you know, I, I think that like there is, um, um, you know, definitely an impetus for folks to come together and, and, and write their, their um, representatives, write uh, Chairwoman Maloney. And, and I'll say this to the, to the listeners, you know, they know how to get in touch with me, Sister Jackie. If I can be of any assistance, you know, in my station, um, you know, uh, with New York Lawyers for Public Interest, let's, let's get into this because this is a, a really, really big problem. And it's not just costing people generational wealth. In some cases, it's costing people their lives right away. We know that there are communities like Lowndes County, Alabama, one of the poorest areas in, in the world where, where people are forced to live in damaged homes that are filled with mold, um, vermin, and whatnot. Um, young children uh, living in these conditions, it's, it, it, you know, so this is an, an issue of public health, of public safety, and, and, and making sure that uh, a federal agency is not using black and brown people's tax dollars to benefit white people at their, at wealthy white people at their expense. I, I think um, a congressional hearing is warranted. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think this, you know, when we talk about the the biases and the inequality of uh, the distribution of federal funds in regard to disaster relief, I can't help but uh, recall Hurricane Maria and uh, the devastation that it caused to the residents of Puerto Rico. And they were, FEMA was actually sued because of the lack of response that it provided to uh, Puerto Rico. But what was their response? Um, You know, because so I think this raises the issue of uh, how people who are still colonized by the U.S., treated as U.S. colonies, are treated by the U.S. government. Uh, What was the response from FEMA in regard to uh, the the claims of people in Puerto Rico uh, not being given disaster relief uh, after uh, Hurricane Maria? You know, I mean, I think uh, very much more of the same, the same um, exact uh, playbook, which is why um, uh, people like Senator Bernie Sanders went down there himself, you know, and and, um, um, with uh, the the then uh, mayor of San Juan, you know, to see with his own eyes and and come back and say, you're you're not doing your job. So FEMA's, um, you know, response was what we always expected to be one in which where they, um, you know, obfuscated and perambulated. Um, And, you know, I was uh, uh, down in in, um, uh, uh, Puerto Rico and uh, met up with a, a good friend who's also a good friend to our dear sister, uh, Yane Indigo, uh, from Philly. And what basically they had to do, Sister Jackie, they were talking about how they made fake FEMA badges to go into these heavily guarded areas where all the supplies were and pretend that they were FEMA um, employees, take those supplies, right, with their fake badges, and then go distribute um, emergency support to uh, people who, who lived outside of the cities, right, who, where bridges prevented them from, like, even uh, driving to be able to get goods and basically make uh, makeshift bridges to get uh, people the supplies. So FEMA um, has, um, unfortunately, a, a track record and a pattern, you know, letting down uh, uh, poor black and brown folk. And then we already know, right, that, that Puerto Rico is considered and treated like a colony due to the so-called insular laws, you know, and, and so FEMA did, did not prioritize it. We, we still have people suffering um, from the effects of Maria, just like we have people still suffering from the effects of Ida in New York, just like we still have people suffering from, you know, the, the, the effects of Katrina due to the way that FEMA apparently does treat and, and view black, brown, and poor 
poor people, not even a second-class citizens, but just a second-class people altogether. And again, this also, I think, is why a, a, um, an immediate congressional hearing on these practices is warranted so that we can get to the bottom of it and stop it and hold people accountable as quickly as possible. This, this, this is something that should be a priority for uh, the Biden administration and should certainly be a, a priority for Nancy Pelosi's uh, House of Representatives. Well, you know, FEMA, I guess they want to be given credit for their flood mitigation assistance program, uh, which distributes $200 million in grants annually. They say that this year they'll start giving priority to projects in areas with high rates of poverty, unemployment and other indicators of, quote unquote, social vulnerability to disasters. But it seems like to me that, number one, that is a tacit kind of admission uh, that they know that they have been distributing these funds in an inequitable fashion, discriminating against the people that they're now making this extra effort to uh, reach out to. But, you know, I also feel like this could be too little, too late, Anthony. And why would we even trust the people who refuse to admit they had a problem uh, in discriminating against people in the first place? Why would we trust them to fix their own problem? Absolutely. No, we, we, we have absolutely no reason to trust an agency that, um, as this report reveals, um, has, has, has done nothing but um, demonstrate a pattern of uh, racial uh, uh, discrimination, uh, uh, bottom line. And, and then, you know, when we're talking about these impoverished, uh, so-called impoverished areas, you know, what, what, what is the outcome, you know, of, of them, you know, potentially, you know, putting a bunch of funds in? Is this in, in cahoots with developers who plan on just gentrifying these areas and pushing out? the poor black and brown people who currently live there, as we saw in New Orleans, um, where, you know, it could be argued that FEMA money in, you know, in, in some context was utilized, you know, to, to displace people. You know, we were seeing disaster capitalism um, with, with, with crypto barons trying to buy up Puerto Rico um, 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 right now. And of course, you know, we, we know city after city are becoming in, in, entirely gentrified. Harlem, no longer majority black. Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, no longer majority black. So, you know, what, what, what is the real impetus behind this? The people who are directly impacted have absolutely no reason to trust this federal agency uh, uh, whatsoever. It's either lip service or there are ulterior motives, you know, for, because like, here's the thing, right? FEMA gets, to, it, 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 it's an agency that relies on tax dollars, right? You clear out poor people and they get replaced by wealthier people. That increases the tax base and therefore more money goes into uh, FEMA's coffers. So that's just one, you know, way of looking at it. Again, we, we, we have to have some hearings, some televised public, you know, um, um, hearings that are, that are completely transparent so that the, the public and, you know, not only hear from FEMA uh, representatives, but hear from the victims as well. They can also be witnesses to tell their stories in real time for the record, because, again, until we um, um, have this, this public forum about what is going on with this agency, there's no reason for, for anyone to have any faith in it. I mean, it's basically in, in um, uh, uh, from, from, the, from the lens of poor black, brown, indigenous people, um, and even poor white people, I would, I, I would add, you know, this, this, is an, uh, this agency is illegitimate. Indeed. Well, we're going to leave it there for this segment. want to thank Anthony Rogers Wright so much for joining us, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about uh, growing tensions between Russia and Lithuania, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Jackie, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. The honor is all mine, definitely. And Mark, as the news uh, is coming out of uh, Russia, there is apparently uh, seems to be a pretty serious uh tension growing between Russia and Lithuania, with Russia warning uh, Lithuania of serious consequences after uh, it banned the rail transfer of some goods to the Russian territory of Kaliningrad. Uh, Russia said that they will certainly respond to such hostile actions. And that was the uh, comment from senior security official Nikolai uh, Patrushev. Uh, but what is behind uh, this? these growing tensions? What's going on uh, with Lithuania? And, and is Kaliningrad a flashpoint in the relationship between Russia and Lithia- Lithuania that could uh, escalate? Okay, so um, Lithuania, I mean, these are really provocative actions by Lithuania, but, you know, particularly for a country of its size and capability. But actually, uh, you know, in the last uh, couple of years, Lithuania has often served as the, I don't know if you want to call it a yapping dog or the stalking horse uh, for uh, you know, the U.S.-led uh, NATO and and the West. It has also made extremely uh, provocative actions with regards to China, um, with um, uh, a lot of moves uh, that China sees as tantamount to recognizing Taiwan's independence, promoting separatism there, uh, and they're following through here. Kaliningrad is a Russian exclave, right? It is a a part of Russia uh, separated from the rest of Russia by Lithuania. It is wedged between Poland and Lithuania. It had once been part of a a European uh, state that no longer exists, known as Prussia, and Russia gained it in the aftermath of World War II. Um, as the Soviet Union dissolved, it suddenly became an issue that it was going to be separated from the rest of Russia. And treaties were signed first between uh, Lithuania and the Russian Federation, and then between uh, the EU and Russia, and then between NATO and Russia uh, regarding transit, guaranteeing the freedom of transit from Russia to Kaliningrad, i.e. from one part of Russia to another part of Russia. And it has to be said that this type of transit is also guaranteed under international law and agreements within the World Trade Organization as well, allowing for the free transit, because this is essentially moving goods from one side of the country to another part of the country. Um, So uh, Lithuania uh, just... uh, 
within the last week has announced that it is will be blocking the passage of certain materials uh, to Lithuania, to Kaliningrad via trains uh, from Russia, uh, something that had been a regular part of the supply of Kaliningrad. And that these materials, coal, metals, technology goods, are all part of the uh, West's, the EU's uh, economic war of sanctions against Russia. Uh, and they are extending those sanctions to these goods being shipped across Lithuania in this transit corridor, even though they were never intended. You know, they're, they're not going to be sold in Lithuania or anything like that. They're just transiting through. And this could be some 50% of the goods that Kaliningrad receives. Now, it's not likely to cause any uh, dire, you know, existential shortages because Russia can still reach uh, Kaliningrad through the now, frankly, hotly contested Baltic Sea uh, by, by sea or by a narrow air corridor. But uh, NATO um, uh, fighter craft have been harassing Russian aircraft on that route. And passenger traffic from Russia to Kaliningrad via train was stopped uh, already in April. Uh, so they've already prevented the free passage of people by train. Now they're doing it with goods. And they've announced already that they intend to extend it. They intend to extend it to new materials uh, and uh, that they intend to extend it to road traffic as well. So Russia regards this as a blockade tantamount to a siege of Kaliningrad, uh, kind of a reverse uh, uh, blockade of, of um, West Berlin uh, in, in the early Cold War days. And they are taking this very seriously. While it will still be possible for them to supply this, they see this as, an, as a hostile, aggressive act and attack on their sovereignty and on their territorial integrity. And they have promised serious consequences. Uh, they have the, uh, numerous Russian politicians in the Duma have declared this to be a causus belli, a just cause for war. Mm. for a declaration of war. That is how serious they're taking. Now, I don't think that is what the Putin administration is going to do. Not in, you know, certainly not at this point. Uh, I, I, I don't see that being on the cards because Lithuania, of course, is a member of NATO. But they are certainly, they have promised serious consequences. And this could be a disconnection from the uh, Brel power grid. Uh, Lithuania gets, uh, has to import some 70% of its energy, most of that coming from Russia uh, in various forms. And electricity is a big part of that coming from Russia and Belarus. Uh, um, so um, we don't have a word yet on what exactly Russia is taking a look at their response. They've always been very careful to tailor their counter sanctions against the West so such that it does not hurt their own economy, because that's a concern, because there is a, a, a relative imbalance of strength there. But Russia is taking this extremely necessary, and they have told the EU Commission to take their member states 
uh, to heal and that if they do not, then they feel they have the right to restore the free transit to lift the blockade by any means necessary. And they use those words. Mm. Mm. And it's that part, the by any means necessary, that is the concern because Lithuania, as you said, is a, a member of the NATO military alliance. So they are protected by, uh, you know, the collective defense treaties of that alliance, uh, which means that if NATO is, uh, uh, if Lithuania is attacked in any way, then uh, the other NATO member states would come to their defense militarily. So, you know, Mark, understanding that Lithuania relies on Russia for its energy, but it is also uh, pretty much, uh, as you called it, a yapping dog of uh, NATO and the EU clearly being used against Russia. Where does the United States fit in all this? Because this sounds to me as if this is another one of those machinations of the U.S. and the EU and NATO to attack Russia from another angle, since the war in Ukraine is not going as well as uh, the State Department and U.S. media would lead us to believe. Yeah, I I think this is a situation where Lithuania is standing in front of the Russian bear, if you want to imagine Russia that way, as cartoons frequently do, and putting a stick in Lithuania's hand and pushing that hand forward to prod the bear and then running away and leaving Lithuania standing there to take the consequences. I think we can be safely assured that Lithuania would not do this without approval and almost certainly orchestration from the United States. Yeah. And in Europe, for their part, there is work in the background, I guess, behind the scenes to allegedly douse these tensions. I mean, what would the EU have to do to resolve this situation, Uh, short of lifting the sanctions, which it seems like since they impose them, they wouldn't want to do? Yeah, um, it's rather interesting how Lithuania and uh, the EU Commission have both kind of uh, been trying to blame each other over this. Neither one, I guess, fully wanting to accept the consequences of their actions. Lithuania says, it's not our national. We're just applying the sanctions that the EU applied to Russia. Uh, And the EU commission has said, well, you know, it's not really us. It's just our member state. It's their interpretation of the sanctions. So, you know, that's their that's their uh, decision. And um, I don't see that there is anything Russia would uh, accept in this, um, except for the removal of the application of these sanctions uh, to what it regards as uh, sacrosanct treaty guaranteed transit uh, from Russia to Russia, from, from Russia to the Kaliningrad exclave through Lithuania. And I'm almost certain that it is going, this is another escalation, right? This is another serious escalation on a long series of escalations towards World War III, right? I mean, that is the possible end game. And this is not going to start World War III, but if you have so many more of escalations like this, as we've already seen, that is the only logical conclusion where it's going to get up. Russia is going to economically sanction Lithuania. 
and it is going to be serious. And they have said that their response will have negative consequences for the Lithuanian people, i.e. they are adopting the Western playbook that they need to make the Lithuanian people suffer enough that they want to change their government, exactly what is the Western playbook of sanctions against Russia. And now we're going to have an escalating economic war on this. For the most part, Russia has responded to the latest rounds of Western sanctions against Russia very mildly, right? There hasn't been a lot of direct quid pro quo because the view from uh, Moscow is that those sanctions, particularly on energy and other things, are hurting those country, their own countries. The blowback is hurting their own citizens far more than it is hurting Russian citizens. And there's a lot of evidence towards that. The strength of the ruble, the double-digit inflation in the West, the energy costs in Europe, the gasoline prices in the U.S. And of course, the big unintended uh, blowback is directed against the countries of the global south, particularly uh, Africa, uh, both northern Africa and the Middle East and sub-Saharan Africa. Africa, which Russia, as the world's biggest grain exporter, is having a lot of problems getting its goods uh, to African states because of the sanctions effect on financial transactions, on insurance for ships and cargo, on access to ports needed, uh, you know, to make the journey there and so forth. Um, so. All of this has had much more effect on other countries than Russia so far. But I think that Russia will see this. This requires a direct, serious uh, economic response. It will be asymmetric, but it will be serious. Mm. And I get the feeling that we are going to have to continue to keep an eye on this issue in uh, Kaliningrad uh, very, very closely because the uh, outcomes, if uh, a resolution is not reached uh, that's amicable to Russia, could be dire for all of us. But we need to leave it there for this segment. want to thank Mark Sloboda so much for joining me. We'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we're having a special Thursday edition of the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of Red Spin Sports. Nate, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Jackie. Glad to be here. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it is actually fortuitous that we're having this segment uh, on today uh, as we're marking the 50th anniversary of Title IX and the Biden administration uh, is is uh, saying that, uh, you know, he, they want new protections for trans students and uh, the Title IX revisions that he is uh, proposing would recognize that transgender students are covered by the law and undue 
rules that have been recently passed that uh, uh, were geared at, uh, uh, you know, targeting transgender athletes, particular transgender women from school sports. But, you know, this whole Title IX uh, uh, issue in regard to transgender sports and uh, students, uh, of course, has heated up over the past few months with the passage of those uh, pieces of legislation that uh, seek to exclude transgender uh, girls uh, from competing. And Ted Cruz, apparently, has weighed in on both the anniversary of Title IX and uh, the uh, the attacks on transgender uh, people, but in a typically not normal Ted Cruz way. So I hate to ask, Nate, but what did he have to say about it? Yeah, well, I mean, Ted, Ted Cruz is uh, is basically you know, making the case uh, that he is a fierce defender of Title IX and that in uh, being so, he's uh, wanting to, like, ramp it up again to uh, preserve the sanctity of, uh, of like, women's sports and, and the, uh, the what he calls, like, the... Uh, you know, abuse that, that's uh, being perpetuated upon them. Uh, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but what he's essentially saying and what he tweeted out this morning is, uh, you know, it's sort of a farce because I, I'm pretty confident knowing Ted Cruz and just the sort of like ideological world he, he, he comes from that he would not have been this fierce advocate for Title IX in 1972 when it was passed. Like, there were a huge opposition to it. The idea that, like, this is government overreach forcing you know, like, you know, know, institutions, private institutions to have to, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to be destroying like so many, like, you know, you know, great men's sports teams and stuff. And it's all just kind of like what they would call woke, you know, nonsense now. And for now, so now the issue is, is moved and it's, uh, it's this issue of like, uh, you know, preserving the integrity of like women's sports. So, you know, Cruz, this is just like, I mean, it, it's a major culture war sort of, you know, issue and like the way it put it in terms of how the right sees it. And uh, you have, you know, obviously what you mentioned before, you let in with the Biden administration, like trying to um, put changes in the Title IX to protect uh, trans athletes. It's really uh, trans women. I mean, they don't, I mean, trans men can be impacted by this. But that's not really what they, the target of this. This is like about, you know, the idea that there's an undue advantage or, by quote biological males like you know competing and being able to um you know take over the space that's meant to be there for you know as they would say real women to shine and that's just that's just what they pump and it's like it's part of the larger crt stuff they push it's part of the uh you know this their agenda to kind of uh you know flame the you know flame the fire um of uh you know this culture war type division to sort of take away from the, the kind of you know, economic policies that will really both parties push for, but you know, the Republican Party doesn't really want to talk about um, at all um, in, in terms of because it just doesn't, it's not popular. So they have to come up with these sort of diversions. And here we are, the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And, uh, and now it's, it's really up, it's, the debate is very real. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the stakes are, are high for the people involved in terms of like Title IX, not just being a celebratory 50 year in retrospect but you know what is title nine going to be going forward is very much in the air right now 
Yeah. And, you know, I think the the hypocrisy of people like Ted Cruz and, and the conservatives uh, who are who are pushing for, uh, you know, protecting women uh, as their reason for um, imposing or supporting these anti-transgender uh, laws, particularly, you're correct, aimed at transgender women, because they never say anything about transgender boys and men competing in sports. It's all about transgender girls and women. I mean, these very same people, uh, as they claim they celebrate uh, Title IX and they're so supportive of it, they haven't said anything about the persistent inequalities in several sports for girls and women in regard to things like uh, a race and class. I mean, for because I think it's true, Nate, that for girls of color, uh, college sports like lacrosse or equestrian sports or rowing or even softball are not as likely to be accessible to them because they weren't exposed to them in grade school. Why? Because those sports uh, aren't funded in the schools where they came from. So, you know, these very people who talk about their, you know, supportive of Title IX, like Ted Cruz says, they don't say anything about the continued inequality in even women's sports in regard to race uh, and class. I mean, even, uh, you know, when we look at the fact that uh, the leadership roles in uh, sports, Nate, 34% of head coaches Mm -hmm. for women's teams are white women and just 7% are women of color. And for athletic directors, just 4% are women of color compared to 20% for white women. So even in women's sports, men still dominate as far as uh, leadership roles on those teams. So where have these conservatives been in protecting women and protecting and supporting Title IX when all of that inequality has been going on? Well, they don't support a complicit in all this. Is like the fact that, you know, they, they don't believe, like, um, they might not, like, a, like oppose Title IX, like, as it was, like, constituted in 1972 now, but they fundamentally do believe that, like, men's sports are just inherently are more superior due to, like, uh, you know, and more mar- and it's just like, oh, it's the, it's the, uh, the dictates of the market. You know, people want to watch the NBA more than the WNBA. I mean, you can literally look at ratings and, and, and say that that's the case. But, like, the reality is that, um, you know, it's, it's how these things are, are framed and developed um, for, for years and years and the way they're about preserving, you know, very traditional roles of femininity. And even, like, when it comes to the – you look at the Olympics and the presentation and all the things that female athletes have to worry about in terms of, you know um, – you know, what sports where they're judged, especially it's a lot more than just the athletic performance. It's about their performance of like femininity too. And, um, you know, that's, that's completely fine with them. I mean, you look at also, you mentioned coaching and leadership roles in women's sports. I mean, there are very few like female coaches and men in any kind of men's sports. I mean, you just cross that threshold with the uh, San Francisco 49ers. And, um, I think, uh, with an assistant and then Bruce Arians, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had a, a female assistant, I mean, just, but in a very, just like, you know, quality control type role, whereas in like, you know, women's softball and women's college basketball, um, I mean, you see, I mean, I don't, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but I mean, I, I venture to say that there's at least as many male coaches as there are female coaches. And that's not even touching on the issue of like the racial dynamics of that. Um, so yeah, you're never going to hear any of that from, from Ted Cruz because it's not about that for Ted Cruz. So 
um, as you mentioned, as you said, it's just it's, it's about a uh, cynical, you know, ploy to to try to exploit this issue, much like they do with the uh, the critical race theory and acting as if that's being like you know, the idea is it's even being taught in K to twelve that like you know they're really uh, getting deep into the you know. The, the structural analysis of like racial injustice embedded within the legal system. I mean, like there's sure there's some of this, you know, teachers that are pushing that, uh, that are trying to wake kids up to more of those things, but there's no curriculum. Like it's that CRT, like, you know, the, the actual critical race theory that is, um, came out of academia is um, <laughs> uh, part of a, you know, middle school or high school curriculum. So it, it's a straw man type stuff. And, uh, and it's also just it's a election year type uh, looking to score points. So that's sort of what it is for not just Ted Cruz, but a lot of these folks. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and, and it's worth continually noting over and over again that critical race theory is quite literally uh, the framework for a legal uh, curriculum or law school curriculum for analyzing law and how it has <laughs> has been uh, uh, impacting uh, uh, black people and other people who are discriminated against. It's literally examining the law through how the law is biased against uh, minorities in this country. It's not taught in anybody's middle school at all. And, 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 you know, bringing up scoring points, I get that it was a nice photo op to have Kamala Harris on the basketball court trying hard and missing (laughs) to shoot a basket. But that that's not advancing women's equity in sports either. Just don't do that. I mean, I, it's just another series of fumbles uh, for for Vice President Harris, and, and the, I mean, from the the really bizarre instances of laughter, like they just are, don't really make any sense uh, at times, and then just showing up and you know, kind of like, oh, well, I'm trying really hard, you know. It's like uh, it's just not not resonating with the people, you know. And uh, people can look at your record from California and and, and then see the way that. It just really just just like not normal kind of like human interaction. You feel like that there's a performative aspect going on in almost every kind of like interaction that she's engaged with, and I think that's why her poll poll numbers are so low. And the Democratic Party is freaking out with both of the people they have on their tape, Biden and Harris. So, yeah, that was not a good look. If you get a chance, she went to American University and was trying to shoot some hoops. Uh, it's kind of a regrettable move, probably for. Her. <laughs> but I, I did want to. Get- the streaming stuff. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. What so what's going on with this major league soccer and this big deal that they just inked with Apple? Yeah, so it's a ten year two point five billion dollar global deal with Apple Inc. And like it's just another example of the the, the proliferation of streaming services in America. I mean, it was for a while when this started. We had Netflix and Hulu, and then it just starts just, just cascading, you know, Peacock and Paramount Plus. And the, the, we're seeing the fragmentation of media. Uh, traditional, you know, you know cables, like we have cord cutters that are, you know, moving away from that, millennials, and, and even people you know, other, you know, older and stuff realizing um, they can stream. And while that was a way of saving money, we're now seeing that in order to, you know, follow the teams you like if you're a sports fan for instance um it's becoming more and more cost prohibitive i can speak for example uh, the new york yankees locally in the, in the new york city area they 
not only you have to have the yes network premium network to be able to watch uh, you also there's certain games you got to have if you don't have an amazon prime subscription you can't watch a weekly game they were on peacock a few weeks ago and it's like so they're actually trying to grow the sport um in that sport um how many working class kids are actually going to have an, even a chance to like actually watch the yankee game or, or the, so they're just going to get used to not even thinking about that um and with Major League Soccer, um, this is a big deal. Apple is moving in now. Peacock has moved in heavily into the sports world. We've seen ESPN Plus. Um, so it's, it's a, we're just seeing capitalism really just start to uh, go after the average sports fan and make it more and more le- well, less and less accessible, really, is what I, how I see this becoming. And, um, and doing so in the, in the name of like you know, offering more options and whatnot. And sure, if you have a requisite income level, it's like it's not going to be a problem. But a lot of people are going to be pushed to the periphery here. And the NBA, their, their deal runs till 2025. And you look at when that runs out, you look to see some major changes in terms of like adding a lot of streaming aspects to their services, which are right now owned by ABC, ESPN, Disney, and TNT Turner Sports. Uh, so, uh, it's just, I, I think it's just another example of like the way capitalism and decline really is trying to find ever increasing streams of income and ways of squeezing people that in this case being the viewers, uh, sport, you know, viewers and consumers of sports in this country. And, uh, it, ironically, it's going to, I think, uh, hurt them in the long run because it's going to, you know, when you have fewer and fewer you know, young people coming up, um, you know, watching their games and watching their content, um, especially when you got to have a million, you know, however many different streaming subscriptions just to, to keep up with the games you want to watch. So I think it's, it's uh, troubling to say the least. Yeah, it sounds like the people are going to figure out that uh, they, they don't want to pay for uh, another uh, seventh streaming service either in, you know, facing the economic realities of having to survive in this capitalist hellscape. But, you know, we are out of time for this segment. Thanks so much, Nate, for joining us for this week's edition of Red Spin Report. We're going to leave it there. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, my friends, we are back. It is Thursday, June 23rd, and in 20 minutes, You'll be able to give us a call and let us know what's on your mind. Uh, Tell us what you think about uh, what we're talking about today or anything that's on your mind, anything that's happening in the world today. We absolutely want to hear from you. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that, as I said, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means 
necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And I think I should note at the top of the hour here that tomorrow, by any means necessary, will not be on the air. Never fear. Never fear. We will be back on Monday. We're just taking a little break for this Friday. Uh, We will return Monday. And Sean, the voice Blackman, will be reporting from Brussels. That's right. We sent your boy on an international assignment. Very excited to hear what he has to say Uh, when we talk to him then. But in the meantime, I am very happy that we are joined right now by Maximilian Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and host of the podcast, Working People. Max, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me back. What's our boy Sean doing in uh, Brussels? He he is he is stalking the G seven. That's that's uh, I think that's what's going on, and and whatever else is going to happen in Munich, I think. So we're going to hear about all the highlights uh, from him next week. Hell yeah, awesome, cool. So you know, first off, before we talk about labor issues, uh, the European Union uh, grants candidate status to Ukraine and Moldova, and I, I think this is. Just an incredibly um, dangerous and and uh, typically uh, imperialist move that the EU has just made. It was just announced that EU leaders granted EU can- uh, candidate status to Ukraine and Moldova as they assembled in Brussels for a two-day European Council summit. They're saying... This is, quote, a historic moment. Today marks a crucial step on your path towards the EU. European Council President Charles uh, Michel tweeted, confirming the news. Our future is together, he said, congratulating Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Moldovan President Maya Sandu. And I think it's worth noting that the 2014 coup in Ukraine, that this entire conflict uh, is precipitated, that precipitated this whole conflict that the U.S. backed the right-wing forces in Ukraine uh, and ran uh, the then-president uh, of Ukraine out because he decided to put a pause on signing a trade deal with the European Union at the time that would have uh, required that uh, Ukraine cut off all trade relations with Russia, which Ukraine was willing to do at the time if, if the European Union would guarantee that they would make up the losses that Ukraine would suffer 
by severing trade deals with Russia. Why was that important? Because Russia was uh, the Ukraine's largest trading partner in the region. When the EU decided not to respond to uh, the then Ukrainian president's repeated requests to, okay, I'll sign this deal, but you have to give me assurances that you will make up for the losses that we experience uh, that we experience from cutting off trade relations with Russia when the EU said nothing about giving them assurances to do that then the Ukrainian president said you know what I cannot in good conscience sign this deal right now because if I do it's going to destroy the Ukrainian economy which is already kind of in a shambles and it seems to me that this is for the European Union, and I think for the U.S., uh, a part of their uh, long game that they have been trying to uh, realize in Ukraine, to bring Ukraine into the EU, which is, again, let me go back and remind people that the reason the people in Donbass, one of the reasons they did not want to be a part of the EU is because they are an industrial uh, sector in Ukraine. They're largely working class. They're very proud of the work they do. They did not want to be subjected to the European Union's quote unquote modernization schemes. That always meant privatization and that takes away from workers. That's neoliberalism. They did not want that. So now all of that, All of that that people fought against in 2014 uh, were subjected to a civil war for opposing um, with uh, the Ukrainian, uh, the Kiev army, uh, which had a whole neo-Nazi unit, remember, waged a civil war against the people of Donbass and Crimea because they did not want to be a part of the European Union and wanted to be considered independent all of the things that people were fighting against in particularly the eastern part of Ukraine in 2014 have now been realized. And my question, of course, is at what cost, Max? I mean, obviously, this is all about capitalism. This is all about capitalism. And the U.S. got in bed with, gave money with, funded clear right-wing fascist forces that occupied government buildings in 2014, legitimized them, uh, uh, the, the, the then uh, president that was installed after uh, the democratically elected president of Ukraine was run out of the country by these violent right-wing forces. There was the massacre in Maidan Square. There was the massacre at the trade union building. Uh, all. The responsibility of these right-wing forces, they are a a unit legitimized in the Kiev army, waged civil war against the people in the Donbass and Crimea region. And now the EU and the U.S. gets what they have wanted all along, Ukraine being a part of the European Union and that region in Donbass and Crimea now gets to be subjected to the modernization, privatization, capitalist schemes of the European Union and at what cost, Max? 
Well, I think it remains to be seen, but I think like, you know, the things that you're pointing out, knowing what we know about how the EU operates, knowing how disaster capitalism unfolds, I think we're right to suspect that, um, you know, this is going to mean handing over the keys to whatever future Ukraine has um, to you know, the market and to developers. And um, in a lot of ways, that's kind of underpinning the, you know, historical turmoil that you described. I remember about a month or two ago interviewing Dr. William Risch, a Ukrainian specialist who's lived and worked uh, and, and wrote a book on the Maidan revolution. And he was living near Maidan Square himself for a number of years and we kind of talked about, um, yeah, the long um, deindustrialization in the Donbass region and, and in other parts of Ukraine, the massive population flight that Ukraine has been experiencing, the cronyism that it has been subjected to, um, the exploitation of resources, so on and so forth. And now, given the war that Ukraine is embroiled in, you know, I think that it's kind of a situation where, you know, their, you know, their leadership is looking for, you know, short, I guess, understandably short term kind of quote unquote solutions that are going to have really long lasting long term effects for Ukrainians and the Ukrainian economy. And yeah, I think like it's, it's really, I guess I'm very nervous about it um, to, to given all the things that you said. I mean, I interviewed uh, someone in living in Ukraine right now for the real news as well about the state of the trade union movement, both before and after the uh, invasion in February. And they said, like, look, like the invasion has become a pretext to completely eliminate any labor rights in this country. And, the un you know, those rights were already being rolled back before this. And so what I see is a disastrous situation where an immiserated war-torn country caught between, you know, these, these major powers that is being um, essentially, that is essentially like giving over the keys to its future to the forces of Western capital and U.S. led capitalist hegemony. Um, you know, it's going to mean drastic changes to the country and its economy, what's left of it, you know, if and when this war is over. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think, you know, like we can see what the EU, the kinds of austerity measures it has imposed on countries like Greece. And we have seen, you know, the ways that capitalists never let an opportunity like this go to waste to privatize more of, you know, a country's economic, um, you know, systems and resources. And um, I don't know, I think it's going to be a bit of a, uh, of a free for all, you know, like uh, selling off like parts of what's left of Ukraine's resources to the highest bidders and imposing uh, harsher austerity measures, um, stripping away more labor protections. And I, I honestly can't say where it will go, but, um, you know, I, I, it feels like there's no real good solution here, um, but I, yeah, my heart just breaks for for working people who are going to be continue to endure the worst of all of this. Yeah, that that's a fact, and and I mean, as we're seeing, 
you know, celebrations in some countries around the world where uh, progressive or left forces are winning electoral victory, signaling uh, a step forward or at least a, a step away from right wing authoritarianism and the austerity policies of those right wing governments that they defeated, like recently in Colombia, you know, in Nicaragua. Uh, and we're hoping, uh, you know, for more to come. Um, you know, there there is still uh, a, a lot of work to be done to uplift workers uh, in countries where uh, they are still subjected to those kinds of policies, but under the guise of liberal governments like, you know, France and and the United States. Right. Like we are concerned about the workers in Eastern uh, 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 Ukraine uh, and as workers in other European countries are also fighting for better wages. Like I think there's a transit strike in France uh, that uh, kicked off uh, uh, this week here in the United States. We have a so-called liberal government, but we are also facing uh, worker struggles. Um, low wages, few, if any, benefits for, you know, working class and poor people. So the labor movement uh, needs to be revived, not just in, you know, countries that are facing, uh, you know, new austerity measures like uh, Ukraine and what we think is going to happen there. But this is an ongoing fight here. But there has been a lot of movement toward organizing, labor organizing, and union organizing in particular. And and I'm particularly interested, Max, uh, about the Labor Notes uh, conference that just happened uh, uh, just recently. And it was the first since the uh, pandemic, the last uh, happened in 2018. You know, so it seemed that this conference was pretty important and it was kind of a milestone. So I'm I'm interested to hear from you why this conference this year was so important for Labor Notes and what came out of it that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean it was um you know it it really felt like it the conference was happening at a crucial moment, right? Cuz as you said, Labor Notes um this was actually my first time ever going to Labor Notes. You know, I'd always had friends and comrades and colleagues going and I felt very jealous, but, um, you know, I never had the ability to get there myself until this year representing the real news network. And, you know, I, I picked a great year to be able to go, right. As my understanding, you know, this was the largest gathering, um, that they've had in quite some time. Uh, there were over 4,000, you know, people in attendance. And I think one of the thing that makes labor notes such a special event Right. Is, you know, you compare it with the uh, AFL-CIO convention that took place in Philadelphia the week before. A lot of important stuff happening there as well. But it's, you know, it, the that conference feels more like the DNC, right, or the yeah. RNC. Right? It's more <laughs> official. It's, it's more of, uh, uh, I guess, like a, you know, there's a lot of more symbolic stuff. There's a lot of like, um, you know, big picture speeches from union leaders. There was the election of Liz Schuler as the first um, woman to be the president of the AFL-CIO, which is significant. But at the same time, right, you know, there, there, there does feel to be 
a sense of disconnect between the the union leadership uh, among the various unions that make up the AFL-CIO Federation. I guess just for listeners, a reminder, the AFL-CIO is not itself a union. It's a federation of many unions um, that, that has millions of members. And, um, you know, I think like they, they have to be much more diplomatic in that sense, right? Because you're trying to basically find uh, messages that all of those different unions and different locals, right, can buy into. And that's not very easy to do. And that kind of culminated in, um, you know, the AFL-CIO leadership announcing like this, this goal to increase union membership by like one million members over the next 10 years, which sounds good, but um, when you consider, you know, the the trends in uh, in demographics in this country, the fact that um, baby boomers are going to continue retiring out of the workforce, um, you know, a million new members over the course of ten years essentially means continued decline. Like, you know, we need to be much more ambitious than that. Union density in this country is at its lowest point since the 1930s. And, you know, I think that what I heard from a number of folks who attended the AFL-CIO convention says that they didn't feel that urgency as much as they would like to, but they did feel that at labor notes. And so I think that that's kind of the thing I would underscore for people listening is that there was a lot of energy there in Chicago, right? And I think some of that was just, you know, it's the first time that they had had the convention since, you know, before the pandemic. So people were excited to all be together again. You know, we obviously all took um, precautions. Everyone was vaccinated. Masks were required in most spaces. Um, so I think, you know, it, taking as many precautions as we could, the folks were still very excited to be there. But also when just considering the moment that we're in, right, I mean, we're still just a few months after the historic uh, unionization wins at the JFK 8 Amazon warehouse on Staten Island, the incredible uh, victories that um, Starbucks Workers United have racked up unionizing Starbucks stores across the country. I mean, I lose track, but I mean, I think we're getting close to 200 unionized stores in the country and even more that have filed for union elections. Um, we'll, we'll circle back to Starbucks later because they, they've also been really trying hard to break the unionization effort. But, you know, with, with wins like those, with the announcement on, on Saturday while the conference was going on that the first Apple uh, store in the United States had unionized down the road from us in Towson, Maryland, with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, that was significant. So it felt like the conference was taking place at a time when you do have this sort of excitement and energy and the labor movement is sort of being reshaped before our very eyes, right? Because you take those first two examples that I gave, Amazon and Starbucks, the workers there are overwhelmingly young. Right. And, right. you know, a lot of these folks are in their early 20s, mid 20s, um, you know, and, and they are bringing a new, fresh kind of energy and flavor to the movement. People love seeing Chris Smalls in his Eat the Rich jacket. Right. They love seeing, um, you know, these young Starbucks folks with tattoos and piercings and colors in their hair and, and people, you know, who are LGBTQ, non-binary, like just, just a different face to the labor movement. 
really um, being the ones kind of driving the conversation. And I mean, striking strippers in North Hollywood were there at the conference. So I think that that was really exciting was just, um, you know, given the news, uh, the strikes that we had last year, which you, me and Sean have talked about on this show a number of times. Um, there was, there was, you know, speakers from John Deere, they, they waged a major strike at the, near the end of last year, you know, the UAW, uh, United Auto Workers folks who just passed a historic referendum allowing union members to directly elect their uh, international union leadership and thereby have more worker democracy in their union. Like that's really huge. Teamsters for the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, um, normally a, a small caucus within the Teamsters, but a very loud and uh, rambunctious one. Um, you know, they've been having more influence in the union. And in fact, um, you know, Sean O'Brien, the new union president, is, is, you know, empowering Teamsters for a Democratic Union as the union gears up for some of its biggest fights uh, over the next year and a half, including at UPS, which is going to be a major story this time next year. Wow. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of excitement, a lot of like rank and filers driving the conversation, but also a lot of older members. And um, we understand that our problems, like you said, are numerous and uh, we're living in very dire times. But I think there was a lot of hope and a lot of camaraderie that I felt on the ground there in Chicago. Yeah, that is definitely something I want to pick up on the other side of this break. We're going to take a quick one and we'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends. 202-521-1320. 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Max Alvarez and you know, Max, I want to talk about uh, some of that youthful energy uh, that uh, was present in the Labor Notes conference, particularly uh, the presence of the Starbucks and the Amazon union members uh, and, and the announcement, you know, that that the Apple store uh, had had unionized. Um, you know, how has the older rank and file of the labor movement or the labor organizations responded to this youthful energy? Because I feel like, you know, a new generation comes into an established organization wanting to do things differently, especially after some years of, um, I won't say complacency, but kind of seeming dormancy. And, And I understand that there's been a whole political movement in this country to to push union uh, unions to the side and to demonize unions and to discourage unionization. But do you feel that the, the um, energy and the kind of in-your-face, unapologetic, uh, take-no-prisoners attitude that so many of these young people who are facing these economic crises that we, you know, you hit on just a bit 
on the other side of this break are living in right now that really the boomer generation left for them, to, to be honest. I mean, how, how has, has, have you seen a tension between the generations in labor organizing and labor uh, organizations? Or has there been an embracing of this breath of new, younger, more vigorous, fresh air that is needed to push the labor movement into the future? You know, I, I wish I could say, right, that it's um, that it has been embraced across the board. But, you know, the that's not really true. I think that it really depends on which union you're talking about, sometimes which local of which union you're talking about there. Uh, so like not to give a wishy washy answer, but like I have seen really great examples of folks in that in those older generations really you know doing everything they can to bring young folks into their unions to bring them into the movement to help them get the tools and support that they need to become the leaders of this movement the future leaders of this movement right and and you can see examples of that and even in some of the things that we spoke about before the break right you know i mentioned like by by no means is the are the teamsters perfect right they've got a lot of issues themselves um as do most unions um but even sean o'brien you know who got elected as the new union president on the kind of teamsters for democratic union slate um you know he has been meeting with christian smalls he's been like i said diverting resources to the teamsters for democratic union so I see that as a form of like intergenerational like um, support that is very much needed in the Teamsters Union. Um, same goes for parts of like the United Auto Workers. I have seen some uh, folks really encourage this rank and file energy and, and try to empower uh, caucuses like uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy or the UAWD, which was the caucus that really pushed for the referendum. Uh, that I mentioned earlier that allowed UAW members to directly elect their union leadership. And I guess for folks listening, if you want to understand why that's so important, right, consider the John Deere strike that I mentioned before. This was a massive strike that happened in the fall of last year where 10,000 John Deere workers went on strike against, you know, this this manufacturing giant um, during a year when John Deere had its most profitable year ever. Like we're talking billions and billions of dollars. And yet when contract negotiations came up, you know, John Deere tried to squeeze more out of its workforce and the international uh, union leadership recommended that the, the membership, you know, accept the first contract that was offered and the membership overwhelmingly rejected it. And they overwhelmingly rejected the second contract that was negotiated. And so you saw a real division there between the rank and file and the international leadership that led to a sort of revolt um, by the membership, refusing to accept a, a subpar deal, staying on the line and continuing to fight until they got a deal that they found acceptable, which they finally did, you know, on the third go around. But that's why so many UAW members have told me that it was really important 
to have direct democracy in their union so that their leadership could better represent their needs and interests at the bargaining table and beyond. And, um, you know, but that's that that hasn't always been the case. Right. I mean, we've seen a UAW officials get indicted by the FBI because, you know, they've been embezzling and, and you know, being like corrupt in bed with. Uh, the bosses that they're supposed to be fighting on behalf of their membership, right? So there are shakeups that are desperately needed. There are, you know, still a fair amount of older folks and in unions who really don't like want to, uh, yeah, empower the the youthful the youth in the movement, uh, empower the rank and file, and that's that's frankly a problem. But I think, um, yeah, like even in uh, start like the Starbucks example. Right. These are these are, you know, high school um, workers, college workers, like I said, in their early and mid 20s, Gen Z folks who know that they're getting screwed over, but don't really necessarily have uh, much experience in the organized labor movement. And that's where Workers United, you know, um, has really stepped in to help. Right. They've had some older veteran organizers who have talked with these younger Gen Z workers, told them strategies for how to win. And then like, they've really just empowered the rank and file to take those lessons and apply them in stores across the country. And that's, I think, led to this really incredible wave of unionization efforts across the country. And so, you know, I think it's there. I think we need more of it. And I think that, you know, Sarah Nelson, the the president of the Flight Attendants Union, you know, said it best when I interviewed her recently for The Real News. She said, if union leadership is not empowering the rank and file, then we need to get out of the way. And I concur with that message. And I think that any leaders who are thinking of getting in the way of, you know, this, the, these, you know, young workers and more militant ranklers, you know, if you could see and feel the, the energy that I saw and felt at Chicago, you should want to cultivate that as much as possible because that is how we are going to get ourselves out of this mess. We're not going to get it by continuing to do the same stuff because like I said, we we're, the labor movement has been on a continual decline for 50 years and and union density is at its lowest point since it's been in the 30s. Like we can't pretend like we're not in a crisis and so we need to act accordingly and I think that the young folks, the rank and filers who are really investing in fixing the problems with their unions and fixing their the problems with their workplaces, I think that is where, you know, the hope really lies. Yeah, definitely. Um, we hope that 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 continues. But we've got a caller on the line, Alex. Thanks for calling. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. Well, um, I just have a question real quick for your guest, and I don't know if it's something that's, you know, easily answerable. I'm sure there's lots of uh, variations and, and things on this. But in general, how do you feel that um, American labor is, is really taking a place within the international sphere um, and making connections with other workers around the globe versus um, perhaps focusing on like the national level, maybe even a little too much, or making these kind of more modern uh, assessments of, you know, where we are in the world, what kind of role U.S. capitalism in general is playing for the people of the world as a whole, and, and how it kind of factors into to the spending and the focus that we have on, you know, competition and war and stuff, as opposed to, say, cooperation, like uh, China's constantly wanting to establish that you know, gets fucked with, you know, we've got to compete against China, we've got to win this century, 
And, and I'm just kind of wondering if where you're feeling like people are at and if it's something that's kind of more prevalent in the same rank and file that you're talking about, uh, kind of building a, a broader view of, of the situation of the worker in the world today that sort of uh, mend some of these maybe chauvinistic ties or that, that sort of create barriers between different sections uh, of workers around the globe. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alex, for your call. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, yeah, Max, what are your thoughts on our caller's question? Yeah, so I think it's a phenomenal question, and thank you, Alex, for for asking it. Um, you know, just let's let's state the obvious, right? Let's let's call out the elephant in the room. The organized labor movement in the United States does not have the greatest track record when it comes to uh, supporting the working class internationally, and in fact. Um, you know, the AFL itself has a long history of being essentially an arm of U.S. imperialism, right? And uh, I, when I, back in the days when I was still in academia and was a, a historian of Mexican politics, primarily in the 19th and 20th century, right, I read a whole lot of history about how, you know, the AFL um, was kind of working in concert with U.S. capital to sort of export a less radical unionism to Mexico and other parts of Latin America, right, to essentially, you know, keep the workers from getting too militant, from maintaining the control that U.S. corporations had over their respective industries, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, you know, that that's not even the worst of it. Right. I guess I would encourage folks listening to read up on that history, not to not to say like, oh, the AFL and th then the AFL-CIO are, are unanimously bad. But I think like we need to learn from our past mistakes. We need to not only see how it was bad for workers beyond our borders, but it was also bad for workers here. I guess that's the thing that really drives me nuts when I talk to workers who still have that sort of chauvinist, like nationalist mentality is I'm like, do you not see how this kind of mentality has been weaponized against us to our own demise for, you know, generations? Right. I mean, this this is, you know, like what has kind of allowed corporations to essentially like pit working people in different countries against one another and to for us here in the in the imperial core in the US to to train ourselves to see our fellow workers in Latin America and East and Southern Asia and Africa right people who are targeted for exploitation by the same companies that you know like have been exploiting us because the workers in those other countries can be paid far less than workers here are paid because workers can be subjected to far greater forms of, of workplace hazards and abuse and worse. Those, those workers are not our enemy. And the capitalists are our enemy. The people who are exploiting our siblings around the world and pocketing all of that extra revenue while we here in the U.S. are are dealing with like losing, you know, like from deindustrialization to the rise of the gig economy. Right. We're all in this race to the bottom. And the people who are laughing all the way to the bank are the bosses and the owners and the shareholders. They are our enemy, not our fellow workers around the world. And um, I think that, 
what I am seeing is that there are people in the organized labor movement who do get that and who are at least getting more of a seat at the table to make that argument to the leadership. I will give one example um, because I'm actually working with him here at the Real News Network, but a brilliant young, uh, also young indigenous labor organizer, Cooper Carraway, he's the president of the AFL-CIO Labor Council in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, a leftist, uh, uh, an incredible you know, person who cares deeply about working people. Uh, he just got back um, on like an international solidarity tour in Cambodia, where he stood in solidarity with striking casino workers who are not only going up against uh, a corrupt mob-tied uh, boss, but you know, that boss is also, you know, has ties to corrupt government officials. So these casino workers are really like up against it. And here is Cooper Carraway from the AFL-CIO here in the U.S. standing in solidarity with them and saying, we support you. And Cooper's message to the AFL-CIO is essentially like, look, we cannot, you know, just trot out the old standards that organized labor has been relying on um, over the past generations like, oh, we have to buy American, we have to build American, and that's how you know we rebuild the movement in this country. No, what Cooper and others are saying is like, we need to go organize the sweatshops around the world. We need to empower and show real material support for working people in other parts of the world who are being exploited by the same companies who that are headquartered here in the U.S. or in Europe. Because if those capitalists don't have cheap labor sources to exploit around the world, then we they have to like sit and bargain with us collectively. But if we if they always have a a, a place to go where they they won't have to deal with regulations, labor protections, where they can pay low wages, that's where they're going to go. And we're always going to get screwed over that way. And so just a final thought on this. We're not there yet. We have so far to go to build real robust international solidarity. But what I think is hopeful is that more working people in the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, these are folks that I've been talking to more recently, I think more people are realizing that the the only way to fight international capital is to fight on international uh, you know, on an international playing field, right? And and this includes um, companies like Amazon and Starbucks. I'll, I'll stick with them because we've already been talking about them. But I was hosting a panel, moderating a panel at Labor Notes called Workers of the World, where we had two uh, workers from the Chilean Starbucks union um, that had an incredible victory that took like 12 years to achieve. Um, but they're fighting the same union busting that it will exported from Seattle to Chile. Not the first time U.S. capital has exported its destructive force upon the country of Chile. And I was sitting at a table with them and Amazon workers from Poland. And then they were talking to the Amazon workers here in the U.S., the Starbucks workers here. They were exchanging notes about you know how to win, how to fight, how to support one another. And I think that that's really hopeful because we're at least learning to see that the forces we are up against do not stop at our own national borders. So why should we, right? We need, we have a long way to go to build that solidarity up. But I think the more that we understand our respective struggles from our own workplaces um, to, you know, around the world, if we understand those struggles as connected 
both um, because they're connected to the same sources of capital and the same companies, sometimes literally the same companies, but also because our struggle for human dignity and respect and a life worth living, that's connected too. And so even if like garment workers in India don't seem like, it doesn't seem like their struggle is directly connected to ours, theirs is still a struggle for human dignity. And that is our struggle and we should support that. And I think that it's very easy to feel hopeless and helpless if you look at what's going on right now. But in fact, I think as Jackie mentioned earlier, if you want to find hope that there's that another world is still possible and that working people can be the ones to deliver it, I think you need you if you look around the world, you'll see examples of working people really taking that fight up and we need to support it however we can. Yeah, definitely. And I want to pick up on that on the other side of this break. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Max Alvarez. And we were talking about uh, the need for international solidarity among workers, particularly those of us in the U.S. and how we uh, or the the need for us to build solidarity with workers around the world. And, and, and I think that a part of our indoctrination in this country by capitalists um, in, in how we see other countries and how we see workers in other countries also has to be something that we're, we, we workers are careful that we don't bring to us in the struggle for international worker solidarity because, you know, we, we, can't, we can't exclude Solidarity with workers in countries that the capitalists in this country, and that is the entire government of this country, by the way, that the imperialists in this country call authoritarian. And 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 it strikes me that the reason the politicians in this government calls uh, countries and leaders uh, of places like Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba uh, authoritarian is precisely because they can't go into those countries and exploit those workers the way they have been able to exploit workers in other countries that they are friendly with. So, uh, you know, countries like, you know, other countries like Iran and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that as workers, Max, when we're talking about international solidarity, I think we also have to look at how countries that this country, this government targets with sanctions, with the smear of uh, authoritarianism, calling leaders who have been elected uh, in democratic elections that are far more democratic than ours 
calling them dictators. When we look at, if we do, and, and I think this is my argument, that we should be looking at workers' movements in those countries because, you know, having been to Cuba and seeing how workers are literally defending the revolution, feeding people, providing health care and housing and, and all of that kind of stuff for people that we can't get here, uh, when people in, in Nicaragua uh, have strong, robust unions and are, are very uh, supportive, the government is very supportive of farmers' unions in particular because Nicaragua is over 90% food sovereign, I think that we in the U.S. have to take the time to, one, interrogate why this government continues to demonize these countries and and in effect are demonizing the people in the countries and the workers and then once we do that i think we have to we have we are responsible to taking a look at what are workers in those countries doing that is such a threat to this government that they would continue to demonize uh the government and to continue to to do things to the people like imposing sanctions that actually hurt workers and working people in those countries. Yeah, I mean, like, I think the the thing to start with, right, is, um, you know, we're, we're here in the U.S. thinking through how to build, like, real substantive international worker solidarity, right? That's no tall task. And, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that I've stressed in my work from the very beginning, you know, with my podcast, Working People, where I interview workers, not just about their jobs, but about their lives and how they came to be the people they are, right? Um, I have a book of interviews out with workers um, also about their lives and their jobs during the first year of the COVID pandemic uh, that just came out. And this is the work that I do at The Real News as well. And the reason I bring that up is because I realize even just starting here, where we are, looking all around us, right? Capitalism and, you know, consume, individualist consumer culture has really done a number on our brains to the point where, you know, it's a real struggle to get people to see their fellow workers as human beings who are as complex as they are, right? People who have rich interior lives and, you know, long histories, uh, you know, loss and love and pain and struggle. They have families, they have friends, they've done bad things and they've tried to, you know, improve their lives. Like every human being has that. And yet we live in a culture that allows us to think that we as individuals are the most real and complex people alive, but everyone else is, you know, more or less a, a human shaped cardboard cutout who isn't as complex as we are. And that means that to build solidarity amongst working people here in the U.S., there's a lot of like political education that needs to be done just to get us to see one another in those human terms and to sympathize and empathize and have solidarity with one another on that human level. And that's really, I think, the work that I've dedicated myself to um, from now until I die. And the reason I say that is because, you know, 
this is why I stress to folks in the U.S. and around North America why it's so important to start from there and build outwards, right? Because if we can't learn to build solidarity with the workers across the street from us, the workers, you know, in another state from us, and I'm talking workers of other races, workers who maybe don't speak the same language as you, migrant farm workers who only speak Spanish. They are your brothers and sisters. You have more in common with them than you have with Elon Musk. I promise you, you do. But also, like, you know, to get people to stop gatekeeping in terms of like who and what we believe the labor movement in this country and beyond is, right? It is sex workers. It is white collar workers. It is, you know, people who do essential labor, but don't even get paid for it. Like stay at home parents, right? It is hospital workers, right? There are so many people who do work and who are workers and whose work keeps society running. If that we need to be building solidarity with, and we shouldn't be taking the capitalist bait and, you know, saying, oh, well, we're going to, you know, build a labor movement with these people. But LGBTQ people like we just can't deal with that right now. No, no, no. We, we can't be throwing anyone under the bus. Like in, from, in my mind, it's like, you know, bosses and cops are the two who, who aren't in the movement. Everyone else, you know, like we need to be building solidarity with. And it's also important to do that, not just because it's good and right, but because that's the only way we're going to win. It's the only way we're going to survive. And that's something that's a lesson that, you know, people, you know, forget all the time. The greatest weapon that the ruling class has always had against us is divide and conquer. If you read labor history, you will see time and time again how bosses have won by pitting working people against one another, seeing immigrant workers as our enemy, seeing black workers as our enemy, seeing women entering the workforce as our enemy, right? And and we need to get over those, you know, tactics of division in order to build the kind of broad working class movement we're going to need to change this country. Now, that's actually the easy part <laughs> that I would stress to workers, right? Because we're still playing within national context. The reason that kind of solidarity building and that kind of connecting with work uh, with our fellow workers on those levels is so important is because the final boss in that regard is international division, is ethnic division, religious division, the things that you were talking about, Jackie, the ways that the ruling class and the ruling class serving political and war establishments serve, you know, they use those same tools of divide and conquer to teach us to hate our siblings in other countries. Um, and we are taught to see them as less than human, as enemies of our ways of life, right? As, as people who are subhumanly evil and, and less complex than we are, even though we may not even know a single person from that country, right? We are taught to hate them in that way. And that is how the bosses win against us. They are doing it right now. Like you said, they're teaching us to hate Chinese workers. They are teaching us to hate Venezuelan and Cuban workers. They are teaching us to hate Russian and Ukrainian workers, right? But the working class is global. It is international. And, and anywhere there is someone serving another to survive and using their labor to do so, they are 
our siblings and we need to stand up together. Um, and that's the only way that we're actually going to do anything to get humanity off its current trajectory, which is a trajectory leading us toward more war, more inequality, more corporate pillage, and ultimately the destruction of our shared planet. So I agree with you, Jackie, that like we got to we got to start where we're at. We got to build up the ability to see our coworkers and our fellow workers as human beings um, with whom we are in solidarity and for whom we are going to fight with everything that we've got. And then we've got to keep that momentum going to see the struggles of our siblings, you know, working under apartheid in Palestine or working under, you know, just like, you know, genocidal uh, um, uh, blockades of uh, around Cuba. Um, you know, we need to see their struggles as our own. We need to see how their struggles are connected to our own. But also we need to actually learn that in order to build a working class movement, we have to we have to base that movement on the most basic principles of love, of solidarity, of human dignity, of the the right to a livable planet for all. And I think if we do that, you know, we can really do incredible things. And I would just give one example, then I'll shut up. Like the Mexican auto workers at, at General Motors uh, in Silao, Mexico, I think we talked about them the last time I was on, their struggle was incredible because they got rid of a corrupt business-friendly union uh, then they voted in a new independent union. And that movement has been years in the making. And in a lot of ways, it started when GM workers in Mexico refused to be scabs when you, GM workers in the U.S. were on strike about four years ago because GM was like, all right, we're going to push all that production to Mexico. And the Mexican workers walked out. They said, we're not going to be scabs. We're not going to undercut our siblings across the border. And they were fired for it. And so what they did was they came back and they fought for a better union and they ultimately won. That is how we win. That Those are the examples we need to be looking at right now. Yeah, definitely. That That is true. And, you know, at the center of uh, our uh, organizing efforts domestically and certainly at the center of our efforts to reach out to our working brothers and sisters internationally, they has to the, the struggle has to be rooted and grounded in anti-capitalism. It has to be rooted and grounded in anti-war uh, uh, ideology and anti-imperialism. Because if we don't understand the connection that uh, uh, capitalism plays to war and imperialism, how capitalism destroys the lives of working class and poor people here in this country by taking all of our money and giving it to the Department of Defense, $54 billion just since February of this year to Ukraine, whether it's in contracts for weapons or in direct aid to Ukraine to prop up their economy rather than giving it to us to uh, actually provide a social safety net for this economy or actually destroying the economies of other countries by imposing sanctions so that working and poor people cannot get a living wage. They cannot get benefits. They cannot live and they actually end up suffering economically because of the sanctions that capitalist uh, capitalists in this country who uh, push these kinds of policies because they want to get rid of these governments 
in these other countries uh, that are keeping them from going in and exploiting the people unless all of our organizing is grounded and rooted in anti-war and anti-imperialist solidarity. It will not succeed. But we're out of time. We're going to leave it here for today. Remember, we're not on the air tomorrow. We'll be back Monday. Until next time, thanks so much, Max, for joining me. Take care. Peace. By any means necessary.